Hi, everybody. Welcome to Untangled, Unraveling the Lies Religion Tells Us About God and Ourselves, and I'm Lauren Rosser. I'm really excited. Today I'm here with author Jim Robbins, author of Recover Your Good Heart, Living Free from Religious Guilt and the Shame of Not Good Enough. He's here all the way from New Hampshire, via Skype. Hey, Jim. Hey, Lauren. Thanks. Hey, glad to have you here. And um, One thing I want to drop before we get started is I want people to know you're an accomplished pianist also. And I want to close out this podcast uh, with a, a special feature of one of your songs. So stay tuned. Play this podcast through the end so you can hear uh, Jim's awesome piano playing. Oh, cool. Thank you. Appreciate that. Oh, no problem. Multi-talented man. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jim... I was impacted by your book because I was basically raised with the, uh, in, in, in the Christianity I grew up in, the verse that resonated with me all the time was Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And I was always told, watch out, you know, for the desires you have, watch out for the, the things you're doing and thinking because your heart is deceitful. It's dangerous. It'll play tricks on you. So you don't know if your heart's really for God or not. Yeah, that is exactly the message that I was taught, and I would guess that probably 99% of other Christians out there have been taught also. The problem is, it is true and it is not true. It is true in the sense that before you come to Christ, you probably shouldn't trust your heart. Um, it, it's, it has been ruined in a sense um, in the sense that it cannot live the way Christ lived with the scope and capacity of heart that Jesus had. It doesn't mean it cannot love at all on any level, um, because we all know people who don't follow Christ, who seemingly do heroic things, um, would do anything for their neighbors, that kind of thing, but, you, but without some other kind of transformation taking place, you cannot love with the scope, degree, or relentlessness of Jesus if something doesn't happen. So before you come to Christ, yeah, your heart is deceitfully wicked, and not in the sense that we're not calling people murderers, we're not equating them with terrorists, we're not doing anything like that, but essentially what it means is that it's broken beyond a place of repair, beyond the point of being able to be repaired, and in, in the sense that it cannot replicate the degree and kind of love Jesus has. But after you come to Christ, the core of the gospel isn't just that you're forgiven. It's that you're a new creation. But when I was growing up, I didn't have a sense of what that meant. I, I thought there may be something new about me, but nobody unwrapped that so that I could discover it's not just simply that I'm forgiven and I need to go to, and I'm get, I get to go to heaven, or that God looks upon me with grace and acceptance. That actually is not the whole gospel. You cannot simply say to someone who you're releasing from prison, um, "Listen, your sentence has been lifted. We're no longer counting it against you. Now go and live well." You can't do that. They won't be able to. You have to give them the inner capacity to live a new life. So what God does is he says, I will give you a new heart. He promises it way back in Ezekiel 36 and other places in Scripture. So, yes, before you come to Christ, 
You probably shouldn't trust that deceitful heart. But after you come to Christ, you do not have a deceitful heart. You do not have a deceitful nature. You don't have a a prone-to-wander nature. You have a flesh that may be a remnant of old thinking and programming, but you don't have a, a deceitful, wicked nature any longer. And most Christians have never been taught that. That is absolutely incredible and freeing, because I wish I had learned that 20 years ago. The whole thing that God has given us a new heart, we don't have that old heart anymore. That is so free. That is truly the gospel that we've been set. We've been given a new heart, a heart that desires the things that he desires. Um, I want to read a quote from your book because you touched on it when you talked about um, basically the gospel that we've been taught um, about the heart being deceitful. The message we too often hear as Christians is you're a prisoner who's been pardoned, but you're still the same person you've always been. Try harder not to sin. Your heart is suspect and prone to wander, but try harder not to wander and stray. That's why we have accountability groups, and, then, and you go on and, and talk about all the behavior regulation we put in place. That's the gospel I grew up with. When, when I read that, I was going, Jim, speak in my language here. Yeah, and that's actually a pretty cruel gospel. Um, it, it, it's really cruel if you tell somebody, look, I'm expecting you to live like Jesus, but I'm not going to give you the, the capacity to do that. Um, I'm going to forgive you when you screw up. I'm going to uh, sort of credit you with Jesus' righteousness, but I'm not going to actually change you so that you can live like Jesus. And so we actually place people in this um, untenable position where they can't, they're going to end up living this futile, defeated life. Much like uh, I give the the um, the example of uh, a guy named Sisyphus in in uh, Greco-Roman literature who angered the gods, and his punishment was to push push a large boulder up a massive hill, um, which would be hard enough as it is. Right. Um, but when he nears the top, the boulder slips from his grasp, rolls down the hill, and he has to start all over again. And every time he gets to the top. The boulder slips from its grasp, and he has to start over and over and over again. And if you believe that you are only forgiven, yet have not been given the inner capacity to really live and love like Jesus does, because you have a new nature, a new heart, you will be like Sisyphus, where you will not be able to understand why is it that I seem to fail over and over and over again? Why is it that I feel like I'm never enough? Why is it that I simply cannot hack this thing called the Christian life? And I actually disagree with people that say that the Christian life is impossible. I understand their intent. Um, Yes, it is impossible without the resources of Christ. But the way people often imagine that is that Christ sort of indwells them and sort of stands beside this horrible mess, this sinful capacity that you're still broken, still prone to water, still deceitfully wicked. And somehow he does it for you. He pulls off the Christian life for you. Well, (laughs) there is a sense in which that's true in that you need Christ's capacity because you can't do it by natural means. But that's the gift of the gospel. He gives you the supernatural means so that he's not simply standing beside this mess that is thoroughly incapable of pulling off this Christian life. He's actually changed that inner 
uh, that inner bent, that inner tendency, so that now you no longer have the wicked heart and you can actually have the heart that does want what he wants, that is able to do what he's able to do. So it's no longer impossible. I'm not saying it's never challenging, but it's no longer impossible because he's given you the same capacity he had when he walked the earth. But but we're not told that. And by the way, this is not a new teaching. I didn't kind of make this up. This goes all the way back to Martin Luther. Um, you can trace it throughout the centuries of different saints, authors who've written about it, but it's sort of been the lost core of our present age of the church. Every church age recovers something that was lost and loses something that needs right. to stay. And this is what we've lost today. Yeah, I mean, you you read Paul, you know, address this so clearly where he talked about we've been given a new a new nature and we're new creatures in Christ, and and it would almost be like a uh, the way we would read it is almost like it was a, a theoretical thing of oh yeah someday when I get to heaven I'll I'll have this new nature, but for now I need to try harder, and and that's one of the things I want to address is when you when you're talking about being being free, having the new nature that we're not caught in that bent of pushing the boulder, the boulder of sin up the hill anymore and failing and then doing it again. And we have the capacity to, to have God's desires in our heart to, uh, and we, we have God's heart in us. You're not saying, so you have this capacity, go out there and work harder because you keep failing, but you need to realize you can do this. So get out there and, and go work harder at this. No, not at all. There is a resting um, there is this act of resting that you can you can learn how to do that, but it, in a sense, it's going to take some effort. And by effort, I don't mean works righteousness. I mean it's going to take some effort to get used to the freedom you have, which is sort of an odd way of saying it. But we we are so used to to I have to make this work. I'm responsible to make this thing work. And if I don't, there are consequences. Because that's the mentality that's been reinforced ever since we were young, is that you were responsible to make this thing work. And there's a sense in which we cooperate with what God has done. But it's not about, okay, now you've got this new heart, so try harder to make it work for you. Um, it's no, now you've got this new heart, so celebrate that, rest in that. The, the Christian life is primarily about releasing something, not managing something. It's about releasing a good God has already placed in you the moment you said yes to Jesus, rather than managing something bad. But most of us spend our time managing something bad, which is sort of like trying to put new clothes on a corpse. Right. Why are you doing that? It's a waste of your time. Jesus is not obsessed with the new clothes you could put on your old nature. He's obsessed with what is new, radiant, and most alive about you now because of the relationship you now have with him. So, yeah, there is a certain resting, and that may take a little practice, only because we are so unused to living an easy yoke. Well, I think of how, how you, you use the term, the not enough gospel, mm. that we've, we've been trained to, we're, we're never good enough. 
it, no matter how, you know, I'll, I'll look at some guy, you know, who I see is like, that guy is amazingly connected with God. And yet he'll even be like, I, I, I'm not good enough. I have to keep doing more. I have to. So it's like, we're never, you talk about how we need to, we're not praying enough. We need to pray more. We need to be in the Bible more. We need to, we need to uh, love our neighbor more. And, and all it's always more and more and more. And there's not that place like Paul talked about of, he talked about how the we're, we're supposed to live like Abraham, who was righteous because he believed God. And so there's not that place where, I hear what you're saying, it's that, that the work is to come to that place of just believing that I'm accepted as I am, and believing that I have a new heart, I don't, he's pleased with me as I am, I don't need to keep doing more. Right, and here's the difference between how secular authors handle shame versus how the gospel handles shame. When secular authors say, I'm acceptable just as I am, what they, what they want, what they're trying to say is, I, I know that I'm a mess, but I, I will be loved despite the mess. Um, I, I will refer to myself as worthy, despite the fact that I, I don't really feel that I am. Versus the gospel, which says, no, you are acceptable because you have been made acceptable. God is not pretending about you. He's not wearing Jesus-colored glasses so that he doesn't look at a sinful mess. He doesn't have to wear Jesus-colored glasses anymore because he has made you acceptable. And you don't have to pretend you're worthy because he has made you worthy. That's the difference between the secular approach and the gospel's approach is that the secular approach has to pretend to a certain degree or, or simply fool itself. Um, or, um, which is naive and, and self-deceptive. The gospel is not self-deceptive. The gospel says, no, you actually are different. That's why you can celebrate your worthiness. It's because you've been made worthy. So how do you tell if you're still stuck in a pattern of shame? Well, you know, I hear people say things like, you know, I had to really examine the motives of my heart. And I want to say, well... Um, your heart no longer has bad motives. Your flesh might be. That sort of remnant that's left may, may be, but that's not who you are. Or they'll say, my stubbornness means that I have a divided heart. Well, no, you may not have a divided heart. You may have some brokenness that has sort of reattached itself to your new heart. But it's not divided in the sense of, you know, part of it's good and, and, and wants to follow God, part of it's not and still deceitfully wicked. There's nothing divided about your heart any longer. Or, you know... Um, I just haven't given my whole heart to God. Well, I hate to tell you, you never had a whole heart to give to him <laughs> before. Before That's the whole concept of lordship salvation that is so that's full of fallacy because you never had a whole heart to give to him. That's the problem. He had to give you one that was worthy of him, um, that could receive his love, that could um, then emulate sort of the walk of Christ. Um, you know, or God had to soften my heart. Well, no, he didn't. That, that heart that you think God has to soften doesn't even exist anymore. It's been spiritually and surgically removed. I'll remove your old heart and, and, and that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And by flesh, he doesn't mean this sort of carnal thing. He, mean, he means something new, vibrant, alive, young, uh, resilient. So you don't have to pretend anymore. It's, it's not a game of 
covering up the truth and shifting your perspective. It's no, your perspective shifts because you now are living under a new reality. And, and the thing that pops out to me is the very fact that we're concerned about, am I pleasing God? Am I, am I loving my neighbor? Am I living the way I should be living? The, those things even speak to that we have a new heart, because why do we even have those desires? Why are those even concerns to us? Right. I mean, you, <laughs> you, can't, um, you can't love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, unless you want to. And you can't want to without a new heart. So God changes those desires. And, and by the way, he doesn't simply take the existing heart and uh, sort of brush all the cobwebs out of it and, and, get, and dump into, new, into it new desires and tendencies. He actually removes, completely removes the old heart from you. But many people, um, I, I just heard the story of a guy the other day where um, a friend of mine said he was in kind of a, a Christian men's group at his church, and the leader of the group canceled the group because it was becoming too personal and not enough accountability. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> um, in other words, the accountability gave him something to measure his worth by that was structured, is it like a checklist? If I do these things, it must mean I'm okay. As long as I have this checklist, I feel safe with God. But as soon as you take that checklist away from somebody and ask them to trust the inner change that's already happened in their lives, it simply becomes too scary. It, it, and it's an issue of trust. Will you trust that I have given you my own heart? Rather than having to live from formula, from checklist from performance, and this guy simply couldn't handle it. It, 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 it. it was using accountability as a barrier to keep, not only keep other people away from really finding out uh, in, in his own mind who he was, which again was a false perception. He didn't know who he was, so if, if I'm not keeping him in check, how is he going to feel safe? Well, he's safe anyway because he's been transformed already. I, I think of Years ago, I was in a um, in a church service, and I was I'd been just been beating myself up over personal failures, and uh, it felt like I wasn't measuring up. And I remember this lady, this older lady in the church, just comes up to me and she says, uh, "She says, Lauren, God shows me you have a pure heart." And uh, you know, in that moment, I felt one. I felt like a, a ton of bricks was lifted off of me. But at the next moment, I felt like, "What are you talking about? Do, do you even?" Do you even know me? Mm. You know, and and that began kind of the the journey towards uh, eventually picking up your book was realizing that this this planted a seed in me where I went, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense because by outwardly during this past couple weeks, I'd done things that I was not proud of and that I was really discouraged about, and and yet God said, you have a pure heart. And so I, I've stopped and I went, there's something here I'm not seeing that God sees me very different than I see myself. Mm. And I also started to realize, and, and now I've come to see that really, I think nine times out of 10, 
God is not even looking at or dealing with the things that we look at and say, oh, I failed here, I did this. Like you said, the checklist. He's not keeping score anymore. That's what Jesus did. He removed the scorecard. But on the other hand, he's looking at the pure thing, the good heart that he's put in us, and he's drawing that out. When when who we are in Christ comes out of us, when, he, when that begins to the, the obstructions that hold that back are removed and, and that's able to come out. The other things just naturally fall off. Yeah, it's like how they train um, bank tellers to recognize counterfeit bills. They train them by showing them the real thing over and over and over and over again. So once you know the real thing, you can recognize a counterfeit. Um, so you're right. God is, God is not nearly as obsessed with our sin as we are. Um, like I said, it's really this idea of that you wouldn't put clothes, you wouldn't put new clothes on a corpse. And what we don't understand is that we have already died. Um, a, a quite literal death has taken place so that when Jesus died, our old self died. But we want to keep digging it up, putting new clothes on it, and saying, see, God, I'm doing okay, aren't I? <laughs> and he's like, well, I'm not, he's, and he's not even looking in that direction. He's saying, no, I see something radiant. I'm more concerned with the trueness, like the real bill rather than the counterfeit bill. I, yeah. want, to pull, I want to pull out the genuine, authentic um, radiance and brilliance that I have given you the moment you said yes to me. And I think, I think people are, to an extent, willing to entertain the idea that they now have a new nature. But what happens is that we need some way then to explain why Christians still sin. Right. And ma many people misunderstand this message and think, well, you're just saying that Christians don't sin anymore. And I will say, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying you don't have a sin nature. I'm saying um, that you no longer have the tendencies that you once had even though it feels otherwise. And they'll, they'll point to that passage in Romans 7 that Paul says, you know, the things I want to do and know that I should be doing, I can't, and the things that I shouldn't be doing, I end up doing, who will release me from this body of death? But twice in that passage, again, this gets ignored in most Christian teaching, twice in that passage, Paul says, it is no longer I who sin. Now, just stop, stop there for a minute. If a pastor or anyone got up and gave a testimony in church that said, it is no longer I who sin, they would probably, number one, refer them to counseling, and the pastor would sit down with them to talk about the borderline heresy that they're believing, if not outright heresy. Right. But Paul says, it is no longer I who sin, but sin living in me. He doesn't say, um, as a person, I'm no longer capable of sin in any way. But he's saying, in my true heart, in my new nature, I am not able to sin. Now, what he says then, the source for that, the source for why Christian sin is different than why people who don't follow Christ sin. People who don't follow Christ sin because they, they have yet um, to receive a new nature that Christ gives when you enter a relationship with him. The reason why believers still sin is because um, what Paul calls sin in the flesh. Now, sin in the flesh is not an identity. It's not a nature. It's more like a virus. Um, a virus literally is, in, a lot of times, he presents it as living in his body. Just like you would never say, 
um, I am the flu virus when you come down with a flu. Right. Or I, or I am cancer. You would say, no, I have the flu virus or I have cancer in this place in my body. But it doesn't mean you are the disease. Now, prior to that, you very much were the disease. But now you're not the disease. So we need to make that, that distinguishment so that people don't think that the reason they sin is because it's in their nature to do so. It's not. It's because of sin in the body. And you can still cooperate with that, but it's not who you are anymore. It's like how you talk about in the book that the uh, the whole thing is that having that new heart, that when we do sin, it's it's the flesh sinning, and it's it's us yielding to something that's not truly our desire. It's like mm-hmm. when when the people who don't know Christ sin, it's it, they're just acting out of their heart. But when when we sin, we're settling for something less. Our heart is yearning for so much more. And something so much more in connection with Father, and we are we're yielding to something that's not our genuine desire. It's not our, like you said, it's not our heart's desire to do that. Right. Um, um, George MacDonald, who is who influenced C.S. Lewis probably almost more than anybody, said something kind of like, um, "When we sin, we're giving ourselves to something less than we are." So, in a sense, he's recognizing that. When you sin, you're actually stooping to a level lower than God has recreated you to be. It's now less than you. It's like eating refuse, when really what you have before you is an invitation to the banquet table. Um, and it's not just because you're forgiven. It's, it's because you're no longer like that anymore. Right. So, if, if it's not in you anymore to do that. It's not in your nature to do that. Um, so, you're right. That's a great point. And and one of the things, even even having to talk about sin so much, is that really we're having to address the thing that you put so well that that Christianity's it, it's become a, a a behavior modification program, and uh, you say God is not a behavior modification specialist. No, and he's not because behavior modification suggests that you act your way into being. Whereas the gospel says, your actions follow from your being. Just like a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. So, um, we've gotten it backwards. God is not interested in manipulating the externals, the rules, the hoops. Um, He's not interested in that anymore. He's interested in releasing the true tendencies of your new nature. You now have an appetite for goodness. You now have desires that are towards God and for God and for others. So no matter what your experience of yourself is, the truth is you now want what God wants. And not only do you want it, you now have the power to do that. So what is God up to in any man or woman or child? God is up to releasing the new nature that he's given that person when they said yes to him. That's what he's up to in any situation, whether it be a a period of suffering in your life or a period of joy or in any relationship that is in Christ, so to speak. He is intent and purposeful to release the new resources, hunger, appetites of your new heart. 
And, and that's really the hope of the gospel. It isn't simply hoping that Jesus will do it for you because you are too much of a mess, even though you're forgiven. The hope is, no, the Holy Spirit has now a heart that can work with him. Wow. You, <laughs> so, you, you don't have to go back to the slavery. It says, don't let yourselves ever come under your yoke of slavery again. Yet, we do it all the time. And because we haven't given the eyes to see or the discernment to sniff out what is an old covenant mentality and what is a new covenant mentality. And we can't even articulate, for the most part, what new covenant means. I, I actually put the question on Facebook a while ago, and I don't blame people for not knowing it. I blame leaders it, to a degree for not unpacking the gospel and, and those that teach leaders, seminaries. I, I mean, I've been that path. I was never taught what the new covenant was. Same here. Um, that's scary. So we're training up generations and gener generations of leaders, teachers, and pastors who don't know what the new covenant is. They don't know this core of the, 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 um, the replaced heart. I will give you a new heart and put a new heart in you. They don't know that. So what they're doing, and to a degree, it's not their fault. But I, but I must, must tell you that you know, everyone sooner or later has to come to terms with the gospel and what they're telling other people about it. So um, my, my hope is that we can get back to understanding what is the core of the gospel. If it's just that you're forgiven and that God has grace on your mess— you haven't been told the whole gospel. And, and you need to work harder to clean up that mess. Yeah, ex exactly. And um, so we, we, do the, we do Jesus a disservice when we keep people in a sin identity. And I think the reason why people want to or are willing to stay there is because it feels predictable to them. It feels safe. It feels knowable. Um, it would it would have been in a sense much easier. Although we look back in the old covenant and and the, and the system of blessings and curses, if you do this, you will receive this blessing. If you don't, you'll some kind of consequence will befall you. I think we look back in that and say, "Oh wow, what an awful way to live!" But actually, that's a system of fairness, right? And and it would be a lot easier in some ways to live under that because you know what's expected of you and you know what the consequences are. But the gospel takes that system of fairness off the table and not only says, I'm not going to hold you to that standard anymore because Jesus himself embodied it and has done it on your behalf. I'm actually going to give you the capacity of heart to pull it off, to pull the spirit and truth of that those standards off. Love your neighbor, love God. You now have the capacity and power to do that because I've given you it. So basically, what so many Christians have done is they've they've become like the Galatians who started out with faith and Paul rebuked them because he said, you started out with faith, but then you turned away and now you're trying to perfect yourself through the works of, of your own strength, through through your own flesh. Yeah, I call that the the bait and switch gospel. It's like you you come under, you enter this relationship with God, what we normally call justification, um, under faith and grace, faith alone, grace alone. Okay, but what happens then is once you're in, it, it gets transmuted and warped into this thing that says, okay, you're in now, but it's up to you 
to make it work. It's up to you to keep your standing with God. It's up to you to maintain a certain level of relationship. It's up to you to pull it off. Now, you've got Jesus' help, but it's sort of like God helps those that help themselves. Right. It's, 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 it's that lie. And so, we bait them with, look, this is not Jesus plus something else. It's just Jesus plus nothing. But then when it gets to sanctification, we say, no, it's Jesus plus your efforts to make it work. Uh. And the fallacy of that is really that just as you started, you should continue. Just as you are justified, so then you are also sanctified. And the truth is, as you were mentioning before, it's not something we have to sort of look into the future and say, wow, you know, when I reach a certain level of spirituality, um, at some point in the future, I'll be able to rest. You know, at some point, I can see maybe be becoming more holy, maybe more free of my addictions, maybe able to love better. But that's not the truth. The truth is, we become ourselves by living out of the reality of our new heart. You know, uh, there's a quote I share in the book that says, um, the way to become better than you are is to become who you are right now. I, I think of how uh, it, it says in the Bible that we have the fullness of Christ already. And and we go looking to add to that when it's like, it, it's look like Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven lies within. It's look at the heart, look at what he's already given you. It's not out there, something you need to keep striving for. It's it's inside you already. Yeah, there's a, there's a scripture in Hebrews 10.10 10 that says, by this new covenant, in other words, this new way of relating to God, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus. We have been. Paul assumes that that's something that's in the past. Transformation has already occurred. And then in Acts 59, it says, for he purified, past tense, their hearts by faith. So, I don't know if I've ever heard either of those two verses really unwrapped and unpacked. So, there's a past tense to this reality of you have been cleansed, you have been purified, you have been made the righteousness of Christ. So then what is sanctification? Sanctification is number one, um, letting that be true, but it's it's sort of becoming who you already are. Um, so that it, it doesn't mean you automatically now are going to have be able to live with the scope and capacity of love that Jesus has. It, it, but what it means is that your heart is new, but it's not used to living under this new reality. It's, it's sort of like a new but pure lump of clay. The, the impurities are no longer there, but it has to be shaped. And so, that's not by your effort. The clay doesn't shape itself. Right. The this the the potter shapes it. And so the potter takes this newness, this this brilliance and radiance, and then he shapes it over time to become what what um it can be. So there's there's a sense in which is both and and even Paul talks about this. It's not a duality. Uh duality would suggest two opposing things. It's not really duality. Um it's more that yes you already have been changed. Your core nature, your true identity, your, your, your actual tendencies have been changed already. 
But but then what you do is then you start allowing Jesus to release that, to nur- to nourish that, to feed that, and to release those new tendencies, so that they can come into play in your marriage, in how you parent your kids, in your friendships, in how you perceive yourself, and, and that that journey takes time. But the hope is that all of the resources necessary are already there. You don't have to manufacture a goodness or pretend that you are somebody you're not. No, the resources are already there. And that's what's hopeful. The gospel of sin management isn't a hopeful gospel. It's actually a pretty, it's a pretty mean gospel. It says, we're setting up these expectations for you, but we don't really think you're likely to be able to pull it off. In fact, we know you're not going to be able to pull it off. So that's why every sermon we'll, t- we'll preach at you is one that tells you you're not enough and you must become something better. Or we'll put you in an accountability group because at any moment, therefore, by the grace of God, go I. You know, wow. at any moment, your tendency is to slip and fall. And that's not the gospel. That is a really cruel um, distortion of the gospel. Yeah. And, and now, uh, address the whole thing of how um, Jesus said, uh, be perfect as, as my Father is perfect. Yeah. All right. So, um, one of the helpful things I gained in seminary, and I, and I don't want to put down seminary because in, in many ways it did give me some critical tools that I needed, but in a lot of ways it didn't give me some other tools that I really needed. And I had to leave, <laughs> I had to leave that context and then sort of stumble upon them, although I, I think it was divine stumbling, um, over the course of several years where God put a, a, an author here, an author there, and started building a case for this, this new covenant idea of the new heart. Um, but right, um, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Part of the problem when we look at that verse, and this is one of the passages that I was able to look at um, in seminary because it, it bugged me. <laughs> um, part of the problem is that we've been given a forensic, moralistic view of the gospel that, that, that filters everything through a certain lens in, in how we interpret Scripture and what we think this passage means, what we think that passage means. So when we look at be perfect, our moralistic forensic mindset that we've been given says, oh, that must mean free of sin, free of blemish, untarnished. But that's not actually what that word means. Perfect means is sort of like the, the word teleos in Greek. It means whole or complete. In other words, don't leave anyone out of the scope of your love. Because in the context of that passage, Jesus is pointing out that God shares his rain and sunshine with the just and the unjust. He doesn't leave anybody out of the scope of, of his love. Now, that doesn't mean everyone all are saved. That's not a universalist kind of uh, perspective that says, well, that, that means everyone's saved. No, you're saved because you trust someone. Okay? Um, so, be perfect means be complete like God is. Don't allow, um, cast your net wide. You know, God doesn't say, I will love these people, but not these people. Or I will bless these people and I won't bless these people. Now, there's another side of that that I think we have to look at that there are certain blessings that do go along with, with being a son or a daughter, right? There, there's certain things my kids, certain advantages that my kids have because I am their father. 
right. certain certain protections that they have. Okay, certain uh, ways that, that they're being cared for and nurtured because I am their father. But if you don't want that relationship, you're also saying I don't want those protections. I don't want those blessings. So I, I wanted to. There's. It's not as simple as I'm making it out to to sound. There are complexities, but basically that verse about being perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It doesn't mean a moral perfection. It means um, don't leave anyone out of the scope of your love. You know, what's so interesting about that is uh, basically, like my friend Steve Crosby had said recently, that that we Christians are so often so bad about uh, assessing ourselves, listening to the outsiders, and, and oftentimes they assess things correctly about us. And one of the things that that, that really nails is how um, the very thing that the, uh, us believers get accused of so often is that we, we aren't loving to a broad range of people. We're very we're very selective about who we're going to love. And Jesus right there is saying be be broad, be perfect in your love. Don't don't withhold it from anybody. Right. And and do you see how the lens that we were given, that moralistic, um, behavior centered, um, forensic, and by that I mean legalistic way of looking at the gospel is the way we're going to end up reading Scripture. And, and the way we read Scripture is going to skew our self-perception, our perception of others, um, and how we literally feel about ourselves on a day-to-day basis. Um, you know, for example, I was reading through uh, Psalm 25 the other day. I've, I've got it right here because I, I wanted to point this out. There's a verse in Psalm 25:10 that says, all the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of his covenant. Now, if, if you are someone who's reading the gospel through an old covenant lens, in other words, the lens that I am responsible to make this work, you know, that's the difference between old and new covenant. Old covenant is, is um, you shall do this, you shall not do that, you shall do this, you shall not do that. The new covenant is God saying, I will do this. I will do that. I will give you a new heart. I will write the laws, uh, my law on your heart so that you can do this. Um, but if you haven't looked at that and you read that passage and says, and, and, and come away with the notion that God is loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of his covenant, then what are you going to do with that? You're going to say, first of all, you're going to probably instantly feel this pinch of guilt that says, I'm probably not doing that. Right. I'm, prob- I'm probably not keeping the demands of his covenant. And so it creates a sense of pressure and guilt. I've got to up my game, right? I've got to get better at doing this thing called the Christian life. I've got to be more disciplined. I've got to right. pray more. I've got to whatever it is. But if, if you look at it, if you've understood that something happened when the temple curtain tore in two during Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, something literally shifted in time and space and relationship so that we cannot read the Old Testament scriptures or any other part of it now as if we haven't been changed. 
Wow. You know, the bummer is we are out of time. <laughs> and there's there's a lot more I want to talk about. Um, Jim, I want to thank you so much for joining me. Um, we're going to continue our conversation, though, because there's so much good stuff here we haven't gotten to. So we're going to have part two next week. As I mentioned before, Jim is an accomplished pianist. And uh, I want to close out this podcast with a, a song of his off his CD, Only Two Things. Things, uh, solo, which is solo piano. Uh, this song is called Bozeman Waltz. Uh, Jim, where could people pick up this CD and your book? Um, thanks. They can go to my piano website, which is jimrobbinspiano.com. Jim Robbins, R-O-B-B-I-N-S, jimrobbinspiano.com. Um, they can hear samples for tracks from the new album. They can order the new album. Um, it's it's really anywhere you can download music on the internet, iTunes, Amazon, Rhapsody, all those places. Um, but you can also get a physical copy copy of the CD. Cool. And uh, how how about the book? Um, the writing side of what I do is at the Good and nobleheart.com the good and nobleheart.com and i have podcasts some videos and um some things there if you want to read reviews about the book and and uh and uh you know gain some credibility there because for a lot of people this is brand new and they're going to want to know hey is this scriptural is this a new teaching kind of a fad they're going to want to know that so i, I address that there great and here's bozeman waltz <laughs> <laughs> 